you're listening to the hybrid cloud forecast series with host andre tost all right hello welcome to this episode of the hybrid cloud podcast today we have chris ferris as our guest welcome chris thanks for joining us my pleasure Thanks for having me. I should probably uh, explain that I've known Chris for a long, long time. And I just this morning, I looked up his Wikipedia page as as almost all of our guests here. He has a Wikipedia page, which I think is a really cool thing. And it reminded me where we first met. And that was in this whole day and age of web services. And the coolest thing ever was was a standard called SOAP. Remember that? And it now seems ancient, right? The last time I think we were physically together is we were stuck in an airport for multiple hours in New York or so bad weather or something like that. But that was a long time ago. But anyway, I, I'll let you introduce yourself. Maybe you can share with us kind of what you do and how you got there. Sure. I'm happy to do this. I'm an IBM fellow and CTO for Open Technology. My job is basically to help all of IBM with their open source and open standards strategy. And so I work with you know business units across the company are either looking to figure out you know whether they should open source some IBM software or whether whether they should adopt the latest and greatest open source hotness that's out there. And so I tend to work pretty much across the business, but I also manage a team of uh, AI and machine learning data scientists uh, that are contributing out in open source in various projects in that particular domain. I've been around for a long time. <laughs> As Andre says, you know, I go back I started at IBM back in the in the early days of SOAP and web services, and actually I, that's how I got to IBM. I, I had been working at Sun Microsystems. I was the, the person at Sun that was working on SOAP and XML web services, and, uh, and that caught the eye of some of the people at IBM, and so they recruited me over to work there. But, uh, you know, I took, I took the work that I was doing out in open source and uh, open standards and uh, made a career out of it. All right. Very cool. And so I, I guess it's fair to say that you've been working on open technologies your entire career? No, not really. I think, you know, <laughs> like I said, <laughs> I go back way, way, way back. But um, when I started at Sun, I would say that was when uh, I started working with open technologies um, and, uh, you know, the emergence of the web back in the uh, early 1990s. But before that, I had been working in uh, insurance in IT. So that wasn't, uh, that was definitely not open technology. That was all proprietary. So let's try to tie this to hybrid cloud. And before we do that, maybe you could share with us kind of your definition or your elevator speech about what is hybrid cloud? What makes it hybrid? So I guess my definition of hybrid cloud would really be, I mean, in, in a nutshell, in two words, it's OpenShift, right? It's the ability to have a platform that is uh, pretty much universal, can be run anywhere. You could say, I guess, the same thing about Kubernetes to a certain degree, but that is my definition of hybrid cloud. It can be run on-prem, it can be running in the IBM cloud, in Azure, in Amazon Web Services, Google Compute. That's pretty much my elevator pitch for what hybrid hybrid cloud is. Okay. And, and we have that discussion in these podcasts a lot about starting out with this notion of where something runs and location and saying that hybrid is reflected by being in many different places and finding the right place, so to speak. But then it also quickly goes into what are the architectural principles, right? How do I write code for that works in hybrid cloud? And I guess 
that's when you know we can start linking to open technologies in terms of are open technologies always hybrid cloud capable or is that an orthogonal so- thought or, or or how does that fit together? Increasingly, there's an abundance of open source technologies that are containerized and can be run in a hybrid cloud kind of a context. That seems to be the predominance. Of course, you know, a lot of open source is really just a library that you would link in and, you know, that would be part of a, a broader solution. Um, and But the development itself of those technologies increasingly is done in a uh, containerized kind of a context because it makes it easier to do the the testing and the packaging and so forth uh, to have it be all containerized. I guess in general on open technologies, I wonder and how do they come to be and how do they become popular, so to speak? Because you mentioned earlier that that sometimes there is a decision by an IBM team that says, we have written a piece of software, we're thinking about open sourcing it. And I've been in discussions like that. And sometimes it basically says, okay, we're going to publish the code. We're going to put it in a public GitHub repo. That doesn't at all mean that it becomes a true open source project, right? Because Because the question then is, how can you attract others to join the party, so to speak. Exactly, exactly. That's that's spot on. And that's actually a lot of my engagement with uh, the different teams across IBM. They'll come in, they'll say, hey, we want to take this thing that we've had for umpty dump years and put it out because nobody cares about it anymore. And I immediately tell them, don't do that. <laughs> Please don't do that. That's not appropriate. I I have an expression that I use that the vast majority of software on GitHub is furniture left by the side of the road, right? It's the equivalent of, you know, you put your old sofa out and somebody can come and take it and they get all the bugs and the quarters and so forth and the cushions are theirs to keep. That's not really open source. Open source, by my definition, is community developed software. And to your point exactly, you know, you want to be putting software out. And and again, one of the things that often, you know, people say, you know, before they put it out is they'll say, oh, but I need to, I need to finish it. And I'm like, no, don't. Please. It's not a product, it's a project. And so as such, you attract people to come and play in your sandbox and contribute. If there's work to be done, new features to be added, improve, you know, performance improvements to be made and so forth, documentation, uh, all of those things. You want to put something out that provides sort of immediate value, but that you can then sort of parlay into an ongoing endeavor out in, uh, in the community. And you, you build community around that. And so, yeah, when people come to me and they say, oh, I want to put something out, I ask them what their intention is, right? Because you really need to be focused on the why. Why am I open sourcing this particular piece of software? And if the answer is, well, I'm done with it, then that's not really appropriate to be put out as open source. You know, we could publish it, I suppose, but it's not really open source. But what I do is I encourage teams, especially out of research and in some of the product teams, you know, develop something that's cool, especially if it integrates with other open source capabilities. I strongly encourage them to put that out as open source. There's no reason that it needs to be proprietary, right? It actually has more value in an open source context where other people can can get value from it uh, and can contribute towards it than it does if we try and develop it purely as proprietary software. But this goes back to what, what you know, when we talk about is it cloud native, then I would assume that one of the criteria, one of the measures of success, so to speak, is, well, 
is it being used in the context of cloud, right? Because that's obviously where a lot of application development happens these days. Right. So I would say, so if I have, say, a cool NoSQL database or whatever, you know, then obviously to make that successful, I need to be able to run it in the cloud because that's where people want to run. So there's a functional piece to it. It actually needs to do something useful. But there is also kind of an operational piece to it, as in, like you said, does it run in containers? Because that would make it portable and so forth. That's right. That's right. I'm trying to remember the last time that, you know, somebody came to me with something that wasn't at least containerized. It could then, you know, you could develop Helm charts or operators to deploy it into Kubernetes or, or OpenShift type of a context. Not a lot. Certainly there is IBM software that's been around for a while that isn't containerized that, that we either do have running in the cloud or, you know, but it's just running in VMs. It's a rare occurrence these days. I think almost everything we're doing is at least containerized and uh, intends to be run in the cloud. Okay. But then how do you measure success? So we just talked about it needs to attract a community, for example, right? Or let's, let's use a concrete example. I know that you've worked quite a bit on blockchain, right? Hyper. Do you consider that a successful open source project or how do you measure that? You know, I was approached by a team just as I was describing. Jerry Cuomo had developed uh, some blockchain capability and he asked me, you know, should we be doing this as open source? And my response to him was, well, absolutely. I said, you know, nobody's going to buy into an IBM proprietary blockchain. All the other blockchains are already open source. So you're you're competing against open source. You don't want to do that. I said, but the, the other port is that you know if you want to get an enterprise blockchain kind of a thing it really needs to be open source just for the mere purpose of ensuring that there's no you know one company in charge and so it wasn't just a matter of putting the software out and letting others use it or even contribute to it we felt that it needed to be under open governance and this is this is something that I have pretty strong opinions about. I think that if you really want a project to be successful, you need to let it go. An example would be, you know, Kubernetes, for instance. Google started Kubernetes and they had complete control over it. It didn't really take off, though, until uh, IBM and, and Microsoft and others worked to, to essentially convince Google that the right thing to do was to put it under open governance. And, and so that was how we, we established the Cloud Native Compute Foundation and established Kubernetes as sort of the, uh, the foundational project for that, for that community. And so I uh, worked with the Linux Foundation. I created Hyperledger as a sort of an open governance uh, community that we could contribute uh, what became Hyperledger Fabric too, so that we could have a diverse community of contributors, you know, ranging from not just IBM, but digital assets and Accenture and Fujitsu and, and Hitachi and various other companies were coming to contribute towards the development of Hyperledger Fabric. And so, you know, my, my definition is a project is successful when it does reach a point where the, the controllers, if you will, have let go to a certain degree and let others come in in positions of leadership and, uh, you know, as maintainers or committers, depending on what you want to call them, and where there's a, a diverse, vibrant uh, development community around the project, adding new features and helping to improve performance. And Maybe you can explain kind of how this works in practical terms. If Google, for example, has Kubernetes, they've written all the code and they say, okay, we'll make it open source, right? But then obviously, at least in the beginning, all the contributors and committers will be Google people, right? Yes. Because they know the code, they've written it. How do you scale this out, right? How do you then find others and what's the mechanism to say, 
okay, here is somebody that wasn't on the original team, but we now trust him to write and commit code into this project? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. And it's something that every project that has aspirations to become, you know, effectively a de facto standard, the thing everybody uses, like a Kubernetes or a Hyperledger fabric. Like I said, you need to let go. And that means you need to invite others to come and, and assume positions of leadership and contribution. At first, I think it starts with um, initial contri- contributors, right? So you have somebody who starts contributing pull requests and bug fixes and, you know, updating dependencies and so forth. And then you you take a look at the body of work that they're doing. And my next stage is to say to them, maybe you could do some code reviews. We'd love to see, you know, your ability to sort of deliver constructive criticism on other people's work. Let them do some reviews. And then, you know, after a few weeks, if they seem to be doing a reasonable job of doing code reviews, as well as contributions that they're making are quality, invite them to become a committer. And then, you know, join in the fun of helping to review. And then eventually, maybe even getting to the point where they can be, uh, you know, a release manager or what have you for the, for the project. In the context of what Google was doing, I think there were some people that had pretty long track records working out in open source and establishing themselves as committers on other projects. And they quickly invited them to become committers and to do code reviews and so forth without necessarily going through a, a long vetting process. Like I said, they, they relinquished the, the leadership positions and, and said to the community, okay, you know, if we're going to do this as a community, then some people to step up. Again, there's no single path, but I think Google and, you know, in particular did a pretty good job with Google. Okay. Is there an exact measure of when it's appropriate to be called open source or is there like a, a gate or a milestone in that? Because I remember not that long ago, we looked at something and we were considering using it in one of our products and it was open source and people said it's open source. It's great. And we found that coming back to this point of committers and contributors that we said it was owned and driven by a company and then they made it open source. But the only committers were still all from that company. And another measure was that there was not a lot of committing going on to begin with. One of the good things in GitHub is you can see how actively, you know, this is being maintained and so forth. And that was an alarm sign that we basically stayed away from it because it looked a lot more like this lost furniture that stands on the sidewalk, like you described earlier. Yeah, there's a number of different sort of signals that you look for. So active contribution is one, right? You want to see activity ongoing, and you don't want to see it being dormant for an extended period of time. Having a project that has sort of stale pull requests or uh, remaining open issues, again, another sign that, well, there's nobody home. When you adopt open source, it doesn't have to be the case that there's you know a diverse community behind it, but those projects that have diverse communities tend to be much more stable and uh, they have a sustained value over time than a project that's put out there and, and forgotten about. First of all, all, all software has bugs, right? We all know this, but those bugs aren't necessarily always evident. And so changes to the underlying platform, uh, you know, the operating system, or even the hardware in the case of something like Heartbleed, right, can actually create a defect. And if nobody's around to fix it, or even to recognize that it's got a defect, then you know you're you're taking on uh, a significant amount of risk. So I always 
uh, encourage teams that are adopting open source, even if it's just a small dependency, to make sure that there's going to be somebody home. Because as I say often to people, you know, open source is free. Free is in puppies. You know, you can get a puppy from the pound and it's, well, maybe it's 300 bucks, but you know, it's basically free, but you got to take care of it. You got to feed it. You got to take it to the vet to get shots. And when it gets sick, you got to walk it and pick up the poop, right? That's your responsibility now, right? You can't just sort of expect it to be forever free. And the same thing applies to open source software, right? When you take on a dependency of open source, first of all, it's a good thing, but you need to be responsible consumer of open source. And that means that maybe you should be contributing upstream if it's really that important to you. But certainly if there's nobody home to fix bugs and so forth, that's your code. Now you have to fix it. If it's a small dependency, something that's manageable, you could take a fork and, and sort of you know manage it yourself. That's okay. But if you're taking on a new framework or you know something that's bigger than a bread box, yeah, then definitely you want to see a community behind it that's diverse. You know, the, the problem with single vendor-led projects is that Somebody could come along and basically change the license on you and, and then you're sort of stuck with a an older version unless you want to pay for it, right? There's There's been a trend lately for some of the single vendor open source to change the license from something like Apache to a commercial open source license so that you can use it for free unless you're a vendor that's delivering a, a product, for instance, or a, you know, a, a cloud service. And then you got to pay. And so, again, I encourage open source to be openly governed because then it's not just a single vendor decision to change the license and there's typically going to be more people around the reason for people to change the license is often that nobody is helping with the development right so i think that's an interesting point here when we go kind of to the commercial side of things right so now let's assume there's a piece of open source and there's a community behind it and so forth is and then someone says well we somehow need to make a living yeah somehow find a commercial or a business model that that supports us working on this code, even though it's open source, right? And I guess there's different approaches. And you mentioned one. One approach is to try to get many adopters and they go back to them afterwards and say, well, now you got to pay me or else. I guess a good example for me for like a successful example for doing open source is Red Hat, of course, right? Because everything they do is open source. And at the same time, it's a commercially very successful company. Yep. The value of software is not in the code. It's in the support and services that you get for it. And the same thing applies with open source, right? Like I said, open source is free, free as in puppies. You, you take on a certain amount of responsibility when you adopt open source. But as a an open source company, if you will, like a Red Hat, they put something out as open source. But the value that they get to keep going and, you know, they're making a few billion dollars a year these days comes from the support and services and education training and so forth that they deliver around that open source, right? So, you know, you pay for support, yes, but other people could also create an offering where they delivered support. And what Red Hat does is that, well, our support is better than everyone else's, right? You know, our ability to vet all the dependencies that we bundle with RHEL and so forth is better than anyone else can do. And that's the value, right? And so, you know, I have to spend a lot of time helping to convince people that, you know, don't you don't need to have proprietary software to be successful and to be able to monetize a product. The product is the support and services you're giving to the proprietary code. And whether it's proprietary or open source or, a, you know, a blend of open source and proprietary software, 
the value is still the support and services that you have for that product. And then obviously, you know, it helps to build an ecosystem around all that, right? Not just in terms of support and so on. And, and maybe it's a good thing to have multiple companies offer a support surrounding a piece of open source, right? That, that, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And that was, you know, a lot of the motivation around creating Hyperledger. And, you know, we had a situation where they're even competing offerings coming out of Hyperledger, but we were building a community around the notion of enterprise blockchain, which is different than the old the crypto NFT kind of stuff that's going on these days. This was really much more focused around enterprise use cases that could leverage blockchain technology to improve the trust and so forth between either competitors or suppliers and, and consumers and so forth. And then I, ideally that, that also starts to attract adopters, right? And users, not just in terms of contributing, but also in terms of using, because you start being able to put something on your resume with a skill that's marketable, so to speak. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. You know, eventually Hyperledger Fabric became sort of the number one enterprise blockchain. And it was used by, I think it was, uh, there was over 50 different companies that either were incorporating it into offerings of their own or were delivering their own support and services for it or had incorporated it into some other kind of a solution. It's kind of like a snowball rolling downhill, right? It keeps accreting more and more uh, users as others see others getting involved and they say, oh, then it, you know, the water must be safe. I can jump in, right? And the notion of this, the early adopters and then the mainstream and then you have the laggards, but you've got to get enough of the early adopters to sort of get yourself into a situation where the bulk of the market is coming along for a ride. And you mentioned earlier that in some cases, this even goes to the point where There's open source inside, but people think of it as a proprietary thing. We talked briefly about this top 10 list of AWS APIs everybody should know, and they're ultimately not really Amazon APIs, they're open source APIs. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and in fact, we did a survey, a study with O'Reilly last year that evaluated the question of, you know, what do developers really think? Do they think that getting skilled up in the vendor specific set of APIs or capabilities is uh, where the real value for their career lies? Or is it in the underlying open source that's actually the bulk of the implementation behind that set of APIs? And in fact, it, it you know came back that 65% of developers actually thought that the real value was in the underlying open source API skills. And that also translates into, you know, people that are not just using open source, but, con- you know, contributing to open source and, and all of those help their career, help them, you know, grow their salaries <laughs> over time, especially lately. And it was a very interesting study. It was eye-opening to the point where it was like, obviously the vendor-specific APIs are important, but if you go from one company to the other, they may use a different cloud, they may, but they're all under the covers. They're all Kubernetes, right? Or they're all Docker. And so it's the underlying open source that really is the key to growing your skill set. Same thing with something like database. Having a SQL database and working with you know, something like MySQL or Postgres or what have you, those skills are much more transferable than working with a specific uh, vendor. I guess it's fair to say that IBM has been in on the open source game for a long, long time. Can you just confirm that that's still the case? Is it growing? I mean, is it open source is a big deal to IBM, isn't it? And I guess 
the existence of your job is is testament to that to some degree. Absolutely. I like to say IBM was doing open source before it was cool. You know, we, we had people that were contributing to what became the Linux kernel back in the early and mid 1990s. You know, we were there when uh, the Linux kernel became sort of a thing, if you will, and we announced support for Linux on our hardware and we indemnified users against the the whole SEO kind of lawsuit situation that was going on at the time. And then we were there at the the foundation of the Apache Software Foundation, of the Eclipse Foundation, and the Linux Foundation. You know, we helped stand each of them up as a founding member. And in fact, you know, if you look at the Apache and Eclipse licenses, those were actually, you know, in part developed by the IBM lawyers who appreciated and understood open source. And uh, we've been doing open source throughout that, that time period, you know, contributing into each of those communities, publishing our own open source. It was funny, at one point, Early in my career with IBM, obviously WebSphere was a big deal, and we were incorporating a lot of web services capabilities and XML parsing and processing and you know all the Java capabilities. But we did a study and we looked at what is a WebSphere, you know, what's it comprised of, and it was seventy percent open source, <laughs> right? And you'd say, "Wow, really? Yeah." And it's but it's you know still to that you know to this day we have Open Liberty, which is essentially you know the the core of, of of WebSphere. It's probably more like 90% now. All right. We're actually coming towards the end of the conversation here, but I don't want to forget to ask one question that I've always wondered about and somewhat related to what you just said is, so if I'm a startup or, or some kind of independent developer and I have a piece of software and I say, this should go open source and I'm convinced I can build a community around it. Mm-hmm. What is the license that I give it? Is there like a standard answer saying all open source should follow the Apache license, how do I go about that? It's a longer answer than the question itself because it depends, as they say, right? There's a number of different open source licenses that are out there. And, you know, that you, you'll have people with differing opinions about whether or not, you know, use of a GPL or a copyleft derivative license that requires that you contribute back fixes and enhancements is better at, at Uh, growing communities than, say, Apache. I tend to prefer Apache if there's going to be a diverse community contributing to it because it takes IP intellectual property into consideration from a licensing perspective. So you retain the copyright to the code that you've contributed. And if you have patent claims that read on the software that you contributed, those you get to keep. You're not giving up that IP Uh, as a corporation. So an IBM contributes to uh, Kubernetes or Knative or Kubeflow or what have you. You know, we do so under an Apache license. We get to keep any IP that we've developed around it. We're giving license to anybody who uses that open source. We're not going to go and pursue, prosecute people that use the open source that we contributed to. However, if somebody comes along and does something outside of that open source that reads on our patent claims, we can still prosecute it. And so it becomes something, especially for larger corporations, you know, the Microsofts and IBMs and Googles and Amazons and so forth uh, tend to prefer something like Apache or potentially Eclipse because of the IP considerations that they bring. If you're a smaller company, then whether it's GPL or sometimes MIT or BSD, you know, flavor, it it really depends. (laughs) So I say it's, it's it's a long answer because... You need to give it a little bit of thought, and a lot of it has to do with what's your intention going down the road with this? You know, Do you intend to just put it out as a library that anybody can use, 
or do you want to uh, try and make a business out of it? In which case you may want to protect some of your intellectual property. Okay. So what I take away from that is that it is indeed a topic that you need to think about, right? That you need to consider your options and then pick the best one. Okay. Final question I always ask is give us an example of something you're working on right now that's really, really cool. What gets you excited these days and gets you gets you out of bed in the morning and can't wait to get to work? Like I said, I've been around for quite a while. And so for me, taking on a new domain is something that always gets my juices uh, going. And so I had been doing XML and web services early in my career at IBM. And then that translated into industry standards, which was largely XML-based stuff. And then that translated into, you know, work on things like OpenStack and then Cloud Foundry and then Kube, then to blockchain. So now my focus is on AI and machine learning. And so, you know, for me, it's really fascinating to sort of get into a completely different headspace in terms of uh, the set of capabilities and, and the technology. And so it, it just gives me an opportunity to learn something new and apply it. Yeah. So for me, it's, it's AI and machine learning. All right, cool. You know what happens a lot in these conversations? I ask this question and then I'm thinking, maybe that's something I should look into because I get jealous. Well, you know, there's this intersection that's happening now between AI and, and regular software development, right? So the AI ops, right, which is you take AI capabilities and apply them to things like your CI, CD pipeline and, and so forth and your operations uh, platform uh, to get better insights into what's going on. And so th these things are starting to, to blend. And then, you know, Edge, right, another, another example where AI is being infused with you know, what had typically just been sort of data collection at the edge. There's some really interesting things going on in that space. Okay. Well, we'll leave it at that for now. I learned a lot in this conversation. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right. So with that, we'll wrap it up. I want to thank you all for listening and hope to see you all soon.